welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Well, at Christ Church, we've been going through a lectionary-based series of sermons. In other words, there's a series of scriptures that we read over a three-year period. We call it the lectionary. We're following the lectionary through this series. And so we are reading scriptures from 1st and 2nd Timothy. And today's sermon is the penultimate message in that series. Uh, next Sunday, we'll, we'll cap it off with the readings uh, that we'll come to in the last part of this book of 2 Timothy. But today we're going to be focusing on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through chapter 4, verse 5. So if you want to follow along in your pew Bible or if you brought your Bible with you, it's 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through chapter 4, verse 5. Now, Paul is writing, as I have mentioned repeatedly now, Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prisoner as he awaits execution because of his proclamation of the good news about Jesus, essentially proclaiming the message about Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, proclaiming that message without any qualification has made Paul an enemy of the state, and now he will pay the ultimate price for his ministry, proclaiming the good news, being faithful to Christ, has made Paul an enemy of the Roman state, and he will now pay the ultimate price for that ministry. So this letter is, as we have been saying, it is effectively Paul's last will and testament. Now the passage that we read this morning deals with Paul's final instructions for how Timothy is to order his life in ministry. And you may be thinking, well, that's great. That's a, a young man living in the first century who is a pastor of the church in Ephesus. I can't think of anyone I have less in common with. <laughs> but actually, as we will see, since this, since when we look to the topic of what we're going to read this morning or talk about this morning, it actually does pertain to everyone in this room. Paul is going to be focusing on T- uh, Timothy's role as a preacher. All right. So everybody, that's relevant to everybody. You endure it every Sunday. You endure a preacher every Sunday. So he's going to be talking to Timothy about his role as a preacher, a herald of God's word. So this is going to be kind of a a meta. It's going to be a very meta sermon this morning because uh, we're going to be reading the Bible about the Bible and I'm going to be preaching about preaching. So it's a very meta sermon this morning. And from the outset, we need to see that Paul esteems, Paul looks at and esteems the proclamation of God's Word, the preaching act as central to the role of the shepherd of the local congregation. So this is a central role, perhaps the central role of a pastor. This is particularly important for us because sometimes folks from liturgical church backgrounds like us, like us Anglicans, will say something along these lines. Well, you know, the liturgy preaches all by itself. The liturgy preaches all by itself. And by that, folks typically mean uh, we can do with just like a five-minute homily and we'll be just fine. Thank you very much. But as I have told you so often, sermonettes make Christianettes. So we don't want no Christianettes. <laughs> so 
So we, they, they say, well, you know, we have the liturgy. That's, that means we, we don't have to have a robust preaching ministry in our church. The liturgy takes care of that. Well, let me tell you why that's a false assumption. First of all, just look around. Pay attention to what is going on throughout God's church in North America today. There are denominations that have beautiful liturgy, beautiful liturgy, but have totally abandoned the Orthodox Christian faith. So evidently, the liturgy does not preach all by itself because you can go right on outside of orthodoxy and still have a great liturgy. And secondly, the Scriptures themselves, particularly the Scripture we just read from 2 Timothy, indicates that preaching is central to the life of the church. So liturgical Anglican Christians and everybody else, you need to hear this. There is an indissoluble union. There is an indissoluble union between word and sacrament, between word and table. If we neglect either of those, we do so to the detriment of the church as a whole and also to ourselves as individual believers. We need both of those. Just like it's much better to breathe with two lungs than with one lung. So here's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about the preacher's equipment. We're going to be talking about the preacher's task, and we're going to be talking about the preacher's challenge. Three bears, three points. It's built into the way human beings listen and think about things. So we're going to talk about preacher's equipment, talk about the task of preaching. We're going to talk about the challenges that face preaching. So the basic equipment for preaching in general and for every other function in the life of the Christian minister is the Bible. This is central to the life of the pastor. Scripture says here in uh, 2 Timothy beginning at 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, it's good for, in other words, teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, listen, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, equipped for every good work. Where are we equipped for every good work? Through Scripture. Paul says, Timothy, the Scripture will make you complete. It will give you the toolkit for everything you do in ministry. It is your operating system without which nothing else will get done. You know, without your operating system on your smartphone, you know what it is? A brick. It's just a thin, shiny little brick. It's a paperweight. Likewise, without the Bible, the minister is even more useless. So a preacher who is not awash in the words of Scripture, you know, that's one of the cool things about it. You go back and you read the early church fathers. You go back and you read the reformers. You go back and read John Wesley or J.C. Ryle, and it's kind of like every, every time they open their mouth, a Scripture verse falls out. It's, they're just awash in it. It is the defining narrative of their ministry. And you just, I love it when I'm around people like that. Their lives are so steeped in Scripture. And that's the way every minister of the gospel should be. So a preacher who is not awash in the words of Scripture is by definition incompetent and not equipped for ministry. So if you have been trained for three or four years in a revisionist seminary, to adopt a hermeneutic of suspicion regarding the Bible, if you've drunk deeply from the well of a kind of skeptical biblical scholarship that has its feet firmly planted in thin air on a scaffolding of speculation, if you've been taught that the Bible is not reliable or that it is merely the verbal vomit of self-perpetuating patriarchy and the justification for oppression, 
then until you repent of the sin of treating God's Word with contempt and go through spiritual detox and relearn the Bible as a submitted student rather than standing over it as an ignorant judge, you have no place in a Christian pulpit. Any questions? Now, when Paul is talking about the Scripture here, he is specifically referring to what we know of as the Old Testament Scriptures because the New Testament had not yet been compiled when Paul is writing this letter. By the time we get to the New Testament period, we know from internal evidence within like 2 Peter that uh, letters from Paul are being, being collected and being referred to by the end of that apostolic period as Scripture. But the New Testament itself has not fully been collected. So here's what Paul says about those Old Testament writings, and we need to hear this because many times we as Christians living in the 21st century tend to neglect the teaching of the Old Testament. Paul says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings." which are able, the sacred writings, the Scriptures, listen to what he says about them, the Old Testament now, we are, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? The Old Testament makes you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the Old Testament necessarily, therefore, points to Jesus. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. So the Old Testament professor in the typical theologically liberal mainline seminary, like the one I went to, who is aghast that some first-year first student sees Jesus in the Old Testament text, oh, no, no, you can't see that's about Jesus, and then sets out to correct that silly notion, that person is not operating within a Christian framework because Christians have always seen Jesus Christ in the pages of the Old Testament. Why would we think such a bizarre thought that we would see Jesus in the text of the Old Testament? Well, it might have something to do with the fact that Jesus said that the Old Testament points to Jesus. That's, that might be where we get that. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, speaking of Moses and the Old Testament text, speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them they have eternal life. It is they the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. Does Jesus think the Old Testament is about Jesus? Evidently. Oh, maybe that was just one verse. Oh, wait, there's more. If we go to Luke chapter 24, we look at the post-resurrection accounts. Remember that trip on the road to Emmaus, two, two downcast disciples walking to a village named Emmaus, leaving Jerusalem, following... A, they don't know that Jesus is risen, and He comes up and He joins them. They don't, they don't recognize Him. Uh, he wasn't wearing a name tag. Um, he said, Jesus said, um, he says this to them. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, the things concerning himself. Okay, well, maybe it's just two places where Jesus thinks that. 
No, no, there's more. There's more. It happens again. Again, later in Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 44, Jesus appears to the gathered disciples in Jerusalem. He meets with them after His resurrection. And what does He tell them? Verse 44, And then Jesus said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about Me... In Moses, that's the Pentateuch, the prophets, the Nebiim, the Psalms, that, that means all the Jewish writings, the Kethavim, all that must be fulfilled. It all refers to me. Then he opened their minds to understand the Old Testament, the Scriptures. Here's the point. If all the Bible points to Jesus, then all preaching should point to Jesus. I had a, had a oh, I was a preaching preceptor at Duke University years ago. And, uh, which is sort of a glorified teaching assistant. And uh, in the lab that I led, we had one young man. He was athletic. He was good-looking. He'd gone and helped poor people in, in faraway places. I mean, he, everybody was in love with him. Everybody. They just thought he was just all that and a bag of chips. And he, uh, he got up and he preached a very eloquent sermon, and he did not mention Jesus Christ one time. And I, I said, I want to congratulate you. You have managed to hold our attention for 15 minutes without mentioning Jesus even once. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Um, we don't have anything to say without the Bible, and the Bible talks about Jesus. So the Bible, Old and New Testaments, all point to Jesus, and they are breathed out, Paul says. All Scripture is breathed out by God, verse 16. When we hold the Bible in our hands, we are touching something that originates with God and has been providentially preserved so that Scripture, therefore, is the ultimate and infallible authority for us and all things regarding faith and Christian practice. Other than the fact that it is the work of the Holy Spirit, though, the mechanics of how inspiration takes place is veiled in mystery. We're not really exactly sure. Some of it seems to be plenary, verbal inspiration. You know, God says, hey, write this. Okay, I'm going to write that. But a lot of times that's not what's going on. Here's what we do know for sure about the inspiration of Scripture. And this is what I hang my hat on. Just as Jesus, who is the Word of God made flesh, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, just as Jesus, the Word made flesh, is fully God and also fully human, but without sin or error. So likewise, the Word of God written is 100% from God and 100% from humans, but without error. Jesus tells us even, he, even our Lord's own being helps us understand how God inspires Scripture. Now, Paul ends his last will and testament to his young protege, Timothy, with a solemn charge that is layered with expressions of supreme gravity and authority. He says, I charge you, listen to this. This is, this is very formal language. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his epiphanos, by his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word. I charge you by God in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who's going to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, I charge you do door-to-door -door visitation. 
uh, be a hand holder. Uh, you know, just, you know, take the kids on a ski trip. Uh, no, preach the word. Preach the word. That's the task. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So this is the most important duty, Timothy, you have to do as the presbyter, the priest in charge of the church in Ephesus. Preach the word. This is serious business. It has eternal consequences. It is a life and death occupation. The word preach there literally is the word to go be a herald, herald the word of God. A herald is exactly what it sounds like. A herald doesn't have a message of their own. A herald typically is speaking for a ruler, making a proclamation from a king, standing in the midst of the, uh, of the public space and crying out the words of the ruler. So, Timothy, you are delivering a message from the ruler of the universe to his people. Ben Sharp, you are delivering a message from the ruler of the universe to his people. This is serious business. Jesus will judge the living and the dead. He will judge you for the disposition and, and the execution of your preaching ministry, you preacher of the word. Paul says to repro reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And I spend a lot of time on those words, and I'm really not sure. It's, I mean, here I can tell you, here's what I know that I know about these, okay? They kind of just are the same way of saying the same thing in a different way. Uh, but reprove is to show some behavior to be wrong, to convince, to reveal error, show sin to be sin. How do you show error to be error and sin to be sin? Through the word, Okay. And so it is convincing of error. The second thing Paul then says is rebuke. Once again, once you have convinced people that sin is sin, and by the way, that's a pretty big task. <laughs> Believe me, not everybody is convinced. He says, call it out. Call it out for what it is. Call it out for being sin as being rebellion against God. Rebuke it. And then he says, I love this though, exhort, which is cheerleader language. Then exhort, encourage people. Yes, you call out, you convince of sin, you call out the wrong, but then you encourage, you're doing great. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't lack in zeal. Grow in holiness. You're doing awesome. And then he says, do it, do all of this, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That word for patience, and it gets translated, I think, in the King James as long-suffering. I love it. I think that's a much better translation. And I don't know why it seems archaic to people, but I think it's such a powerful word, long-suffering. That word for patience is macrothemia, and it describes the pastoral, in this context, listen, it describes the pastoral disposition which never grows irritated. Wow. I feel like I might be getting reproved, <laughs> maybe even rebuked. <laughs> never grows irritated, never despairs, and never regards any person as beyond salvation. The Christian minister patiently believes in those under his care because he unconquerably believes in the transforming power 
of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Long-suffering. It, take, it takes a long time to learn long-suffering. I think I'm just about getting the knack of it. But then Paul warns Timothy that preaching the Word of God will not always be a popular task. In fact, as we look at the world we are living in right now, you could say that we are experiencing the fulfillment of this passage in 2 Timothy verses 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, For the time is coming when people will not endure, put up with, don't have a taste for it, will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. Uh, the, the word in, it, actually in the King James uh, translates it like this, but wanting to have their ears tickled. That's really what it does say in the Greek, having their ears tickled. Will accumulate, they'll pile up for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So Paul warns that people will actively heap together teachers who will not preach God's Word, but, will, but they will seek out teachers to confirm what they want to hear. They will actively seek out alternatives to biblical teaching. The reason that they do this, he says, is to suit their passions. In other words, our disordered appetites our disordered affections. Richard Foster famously grouped those disordered appetites into the categories of money, sex, and power. Money, sex, and power. God's Word challenges the false gods we make of our appetites, and thus we avoid hearing evidence to the contrary. In other words, sin is the primordial source of confirmation bias. Sin is the primordial source of confirmation bias, wanting to just have our predetermined position endorsed. And we see this in high gear in the mainline denominations who have abandoned God's Word in order to grovel before the idols of the sexual and gender revolution that has been occurring. Disordered eros, disordered eros is the universal solvent of biblical faith. A homecoming, uh, excuse me, a homeschooling mother, a homeschooling mother, I just read this this week, whose adult children have grown, grown up, left home, they have all, this homeschooling mom, Christian homeschooling mom, all their children, all of her children have rejected the Christian faith. And she says that mostly it has to do with the sexual revolution. She said the sexual issues, and particularly the newer same-sex marriage, transgender ones, are like an enormous dike walling them off, my children off from Christian belief. It is not that there aren't arguments and there isn't a vision of life that makes sense of Christianity, as you know, but that they are impervious to these. They won't listen to these. They discount all of it in their heads as a holdover from past prejudices and tribalism. I know that whenever I say something about tr along traditional lines, they are with greater or lesser patience or hostility thinking, you have nothing to say to me. You come from a place that history and society have rightly and thankfully journeyed beyond. But when we do let our passions determine money, sex, and power, 
Our disordered passions determine what we will listen to. It doesn't just hurt us to seek out teachers who will coddle our disordered desires and affections. It actually hurts the cause of the gospel. It doesn't just damn us personally, but it shuts others out from the kingdom of God. Raymond Fong is an evangelist in Hong Kong, and he tells of how he was speaking to a textile worker about the Christian faith, and he urged him to come and visit a church. And so the man could not go to a service on Sunday without losing a day's wages, but he did so. And after the service, Fong and the man went to lunch. And the, um, the worker said, well, that sermon really hit me. Uh, it had been about sin. What the preacher said was true of me, laziness, a violent temper, and addiction to cheap entertainment. That's a sin? I don't know. So, <laughs> Fung held his breath, trying to control his excitement. Had the gospel message gotten through? But he was disappointed. Nothing was said. This is what the worker said. Nothing was said, however, about my boss, the man said to Fong. When the preacher had gone through the list of sins, he had, uh, he had said nothing about how he, my, my boss, employs child laborers, how he doesn't give us the legally required holidays, how he puts on false labels, how he forces us to do overtime. Fung knew that members of the management class were sitting in the congregation, but those sins were never mentioned. The textile worker agreed that he was a sinner but rejected the message of the church because he sensed its incompleteness. The disordered passions for money and power were never called out, never rebuked, because the wealthy and powerful business class had found them a teacher to tickle their ears. And it shut the door of the kingdom in the face of a man who needed the gospel. Paul goes on to say that, the, that so, so those who heap together teachers having itching ears will actively turn, actively turn away from the truth and follow and wander off into myths. Wander off into myths. See, in the vacuum that is left, when we reject the truth of all of God's Word, we wander away into other narratives, into false narratives. Most people don't become atheists when they walk away from the truth of God's Word. Did you know that? The problem isn't that they will come to believe in nothing, but they, they, they will far, be far more likely to be taken in by anything. I... I I, uh, I don't know what I did before YouTube. It's just most of this stuff is just the right length for my minute attention span. It's just minute. And, uh, and, and really, it is good because, you know, I've got 15 minutes so I can sit down and, and do something hopefully productive. Sometimes it's cat videos, I admit it. You know, oh, look, there's a cute otter. I'll watch that for 15 minutes. But, uh, but actually... Um, there's this, uh, there are like little science programs everywhere on YouTube now. And one of the guys I watch is really, really, really good. I mean, excellent. And, um, and he, he, somebody asked him about his faith background and he responded in that, that he had grown up in a very traditional, you know, theologically biblical uh, form of Christianity. But then in his twenties, he, he had rejected that. And it was interesting to hear him because he says, I'm not an agnostic. Uh, I guess I would call myself a seeker. 
And, and that was really cool. But then he talked about these, this kind of bizarre stuff that he was into, which was really not very scientific. Here's a guy whose gig on YouTube is talking about science. But this was just not scientific at all. It was very, at best, speculative, and, and really pseudoscience is really what, it, what he got into. And it was just interesting to me, this highly intelligent individual had wandered off into a myth. Because in the vacuum that's left when we discard biblical faith, we don't turn to unbelief, we turn to wrong belief. Beloved, Christ Church is a Bible church. We are committed to the authority and sufficiency of the canons of the old, the canon of the Old and New Testaments. But are people turning away from the narrative of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus as revealed in Scripture and wandering off into myths? Well, I can say, thankfully, that you know, by God's grace, I don't see it here at Christ Church. But the Pew Forum just released an update on their overview of the religious landscape in the United States just this past week. And the news in that very reliable uh, data is that Christianity is in steep decline in the U.S. But I am not surprised by this. I'm not surprised by this at all. I mean, the Bible clearly says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that before the end, I mean, sort of on a macro level, there will be a great falling away. St. Paul says that. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3. A great apostasy. And it's happened in the past, and we're assured that it will happen again in the future. But I do not despair for the church because Paul, when Paul saw some in the church in Ephesus following false teachers and having their faith shipwrecked as a result, uh, the, the translation in the uh, ESV is that their faith is upsetting, upsetting the faith of some. And it's kind of like, you know, I'm really upset. But what the word actually means is like capsized. They're capsizing the faith of some. Paul did not despair or become discouraged. Instead, he boldly asserts in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands. God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So brothers and sisters, how about doing this for this preacher? Pray for me that I will not depart from the truth of God's Word ever. Pray for me. And if you see me slipping, I don't know, reprove, rebuke, encourage, exhort, I don't know, maybe something like that. And I'll do the same for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 